2: This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnut, And today with me is Christine Michelle Carter, Senior Contributor at Forbes. Have to hold and wait for me here for a second as I read out all of the description of all the roles that you do. But you're a senior senior contributor at Forbes. You're an author. Congratulations! Thank you. Of and this is a hard word for me to say. Of mom as oh, yes. I, 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 I I won't swear as much, but I was close. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, to pronounce mom in being British is really difficult. So it's kind of wrapping my mouth around that word is really tough. But you're an author of, of that book, and also can mommy go to work? Uh, you're a speaker. You're a mom yourself, you're an advocate for moms, and you're the number one global voice for working moms. Is there anything that I missed there that you do? You do a lot.
1: I do a lot. (laughs) I try to keep myself busy. It's funny, only in Europe would the word mom be the difficult part of that title versus the AF.
2: (laughs) I've been struggling. I've been thinking about it all week coming onto the podcast. I was like, I know I'm going to have to say the word and there's just no way to say it naturally, just being British. I'll tell you the two words, there's mom and there's y'all. And those are the two words that are just horrible to say if you're British because they just don't come naturally. They don't roll naturally. <laughs> right but we'll be good maybe i'll just say mother af or something throughout the conversation <laughs> just say
1: mom just say mom it's fine or
2: mom yeah, yeah. mum af uh so i've been so excited to have you on the podcast but yeah just introducing yourself is there anything that i didn't cover there anything that you're you're working on that you'd like to share as part of your introduction <laughs>
1: No, I, I'm always working on something. The most constant and most important project is being a mother to the two cutest kids on the planet. That's probably the only thing I would add.
2: <laughs> it's really hard, again, speaking on the intro about all of the things you do, just as a as a host of a podcast, I sit here and think, okay, what angle can I go with to get the, the most useful information for the listeners that listen to the podcast, of the course. things that I'm most curious about to entertain me? because I'm sure you're someone that I could talk to for hours and all of these different tangents. But the thing that really stood out to me having read your book um, was authenticity. That's a theme that I kept coming back to, both in your book and actually in the other content that you produce. And it really stood out to me, the honesty in both your writing, your communication skills, and the way that you present yourself and encourage other people to present themselves to the world. And I was just curious just to start off the conversation today about where you think maybe that authenticity comes from? Because it's not, I want to use the words brutally honest or unapologetically honest, but they almost sound quite negative. I just think you're very free with honesty for reading between the lines and reading your writing. I just want to know where that comes from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for picking that up. It is quite important to me. One of my missions and everything that I do is to make working mothers feel confident and understood. And I think that that spawns from the previous generation and just watching my mom and those women being put in such a tough position where they didn't have, I know it doesn't seem like it, but as many opportunities as we do to be authentic and transparent, that was really a fake it till you make it generation, especially with multicultural moms. They had to appear to be perfect. perfect on the inside, but a lot of them were single parents too, juggling work and home. And that was a generation that wouldn't have been given the grace that we have right now through this pandemic to work virtually and and have permission to be afraid and scared and anxious. And That was a a generation that had the media telling them that they had to wear power suits and children came second. And there was no such thing as work-life balance and work was what paid the bills. So that needed to be more important. And I feel like my generation we had an underground backlash to that. So if you do some social listening, you can see that whenever somebody has these perfect mom ads where their hair is perfect or their children is perfect, they tend to get a lot of negative uh, backlash on social. And that's because my generation is all about honest parenting. I mean, it's one of the most popular hashtags on social media, honest parenting and motherhood unfiltered and whatnot. So um, I just try to encourage my generation and let them know, that the previous generation paved the the way for us, but it is, and we should honor them and respect everything that they had to fight for so that we could be honest and, and have transparent communication. And, And because they did that for us, we we should continue to do that with each other. There should be no shame in in, in being your real self and being anxious and and cursing and loving your children one day or loving your career more than next.
2: Mm. We'll definitely get onto that part more, and particularly the marketing side of that later in the conversation is something I want to come back to. So it, it sounds fair to say that that's that's a thread that's been throughout your life. But one thing, reading your book, and I won't give away too many spoilers, but. And again, to the listeners, if you want to know the context of what I'm talking about, go, go and purchase the book. I'd re- highly recommend it. But um, there, there are some pivot, pivotal moments, in my opinion, as a reader in the book, and two of them were kind of tied together. One was a section about going to therapy for the first time. Yeah. And one was a, I'm going to call it a, an incident with your mother-in-law. Yes. And I wanted to know whether that particular time, that particular period of life, or those kind of trigger moments in your life, they... Amplified your commitment to authenticity? Or was it your authenticity that allowed you to just live through those moments a little bit more easily?
1: It was probably the former. So yeah. when I when I decided that it was time for me to go to therapy, it was it was groundbreaking for me just because as a black mom. That really wasn't discussed in my household. My mother didn't go to therapy. It wasn't something that's communicated. Again, that's a generation of fake it till you make it and and don't show everybody the challenges that you're going through. So even when I had my daughter, Maya nine years ago, one of the first books I purchased because I could tell that something was off and I was going through postpartum depression. One of the first books that I purchased was a book about anxiety. And my my mother found it when she was helping me with Maya when she was a newborn. And she just looked at me and kind of gave me a smile, but we didn't discuss that moment. We didn't discuss how I was feeling as a mother, the anxiety, the postpartum depression that I was going through, any challenges that she had had as a mother, and. Just uh, keeping that private to me and, and keeping her experiences private just showed me that I didn't want to do that with Maya. There was nothing wrong with my mother doing that. that if that's you know the choices she made, that was the that she made. But it made me realize that I needed to be authentic and, and be vocal about therapy with my daughter, um, especially if she ever became a mother. I didn't want that to be the first time she experienced therapy. And then the moment with my mother-in-law. So um, I actually love to tell people everything in the book happened. It may not have happened in the order it happened, but it definitely happened. My mother-in-law actually called me the name that you read in the book at my wedding and, and said it to my grandmother. <laughs> so even worse than it was in the book. Yeah. Um, but again, just wanting to be transparent and authentic. I I think that there's a lot of women that struggle with the relationship with their mother-in-law, especially multicultural, just because there's such a, um, within those communities, there's family and the connection between a mother and her children is just of the utmost importance. So not being able to have that connection with your mother-in-law for some women can be just so daunting and it can bring on its own anxiety. It can bring problems in the marriage as you saw with my book. So I just wanted to be Transparent and authentic about that too For other women
2: Mm. And do you think it's improved Specifically in relation to your writing Do you think it's improved you as a writer
1: It has uh, Because I think empathy and emotion Should be the uh, they should be at the crux of your writing, no matter what you're writing. I think that even in business writing, especially in, in marketing, people tend to try and hit the data and the insights, but they lose that empathy when it comes time to write to consumers or to write to any general audience. And I always lead with that and stuff the data in afterwards.
2: Mm. That's so interesting because, I mean, it leads on to what I wanted to talk to you about next, another topic within this and there's a great line uh, which I've got in front of me from one of the early chapters, and it says, "I'm allowed to be both a work in progress and help others grow at the same time." And I really like that because I think, in my mind, I'm smiling because I describe it as like a perfection porn. So at the moment, there's so much, everything is everything has to be perfect. You know, everything in marketing is very hustle, 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 working nonstop, and everyone presents themselves on social media in a certain light later in the book, you say, well, are we even sharing at all? And I just think that's a critical lesson for everyone. And one of the reasons why I wanted to describe this topic of authenticity, because living with authenticity and being comfortable with being authentically yourself is a good life skill. It makes you more comfortable, lowers anxiety, lets you live. But in particular with marketing, it allows you to get your message across sincerely to a customer, a consumer, and audience. And so I thought that was really important.
1: Absolutely, I uh, guess you could say that I'm design thinking my life, like rapidly prototyping my life. I, I definitely feel the Apple model of acting and then reacting and then adapting and just keep keeping going. That cycle going is probably mm-hmm. I, I live by that in my professional life. I live by that in my personal life. I try not to get too stuck on being perfect. Um, I try mm-hmm. to get I try not to get too stuck in other people's advice or what's been done in the past or what resources are available. Available to me I really try and just live off of test and learn
2: Mm. so you produce articles and social media content and as a as an influential figure in this field I'm curious to know you must have moments where you're writing or you're about to share something on social media and I imagine sometimes it goes one direction or the other perhaps sometimes you sit there and think am I committing to being authentic myself because you're very conscious of it so is this actually authentic what I'm about to post And sometimes you must go the other direction and think, actually, is this too honest? Is this sharing too much? Do you have those moments?
1: I I do. Sometimes I think that I am too honest and share too much, especially like when you think about chapter four in the book, and I was talking about how to bring the passion back in my marriage. (laughs) I sometimes (laughs) worry like my parents are going to read this, is this too honest and too authentic? But then I remember... The audience that it was intended for, and I know that this is exactly what they need to hear because they're struggling with the same thoughts. Now, when it comes to my articles for Gen Pop or the ma- or mainstream media, for example, like when I used to write for HuffPost and one of my articles was about discovering actually that I'm 32% white when I was in London, I, when I discovered that, I never thought at that moment, is this a little bit too honest? I know that my titles can be kind of grabby and attention-getting. So I thought, you know, is this a and attention-getting title in a negative way? But I didn't think that the article was. And I was quite surprised to see members of the media kind of spin the article and make it seem like I was horrified to be white, which I wasn't. Um, But after that, that happened about five years ago. And after that, I realized that people will spin my content, not just my headlines, but my content. So I better write with authenticity and be able to support anything that I write for my my audience because i know gen pop might spin it
2: Mm. that was another thing actually i've just remembered coming into this is that i was really curious to know because again there's a there's a different level of writing skill between just being a general writer between being an author and then being a journalist they're all very different skills and it must be really interesting for you to remain authentic from a journalistic standpoint because as a journalist particularly these days, the the goal for a lot of journalists isn't actually the art of journalism. It's to get clicks, to get views, right. which I was wondering whether that's something you battle with as well. And what do you do, if anything, to keep yourself focused on the goal of just delivering great writing and great journalism as opposed to those other essentially vanity metrics.
1: Right. Well, I always like to say that my goal is great writing and I pay homage and and have great respect for the journalists of our times who write for incredible Publications. I do. I am aware that they are still under the same, you know, clickbait um, fear. You know, of worrying about mm. clicks and, and and visibility just as much as me. But I. I try to stay within my swim lane. And I think that's the difference between me and a journalist. No matter what, I'm going to write about what it means to be a working mom and how hard it is. I'm always coming from that lens. Versus I think a, a journalist will tell a deeper story about working parents or might talk about dads and how they support. I am a content writer first and foremost. And I want people to understand all of the things we deal with, how we're turning to C B D to alleviate anxiety, how childcare is an issue for us, how maternal mental health is declining and has become an issue by the World Health Organization. I'm always coming from the lens of motherhood is hard as hell. And this is mm. and this is what we are dealing with, versus um, a journalist who might be a little bit more subjective in, in their writing.
2: Mm. That's really interesting. I think that's a great tip for any in the marketing world, again, there's a variety of different roles. Sometimes you have copywriters, sometimes journalists, sometimes content production managers. And uh, I think sometimes, particularly from senior management, there's a lot of focus on the vanity metrics. But actually, a copywriter or, or a writer has a different goal to a, to a journalist or to an author. And it's important, actually, for people to remember that so that your writing can remain authentic. So I think it's really interesting to hear that from you. I'm curious, a lot of the, your work is so honest, it, it generates or provokes a response in people. And sometimes that leads to people that are vulnerable, and they respond to you. And, and I'm, I was assuming that you must get a lot of particularly mothers, but people in general coming to you sharing their problems. And I just wanted to know whether that influences your writing, and whether that's something you struggle with as well. How do you use that feedback loop or that feedback system to influence your writing?
1: It absolutely does. Over the past five years that I've been writing um, for Gen Pop and had the opportunity to write for Forbes and other publications, I do have women and men coming to me, sometimes the men will come and say, well, I'm a working dad and my ex-wife or my partner doesn't do anything. And I'm the woman that you're describing is actually me. So I do try, it, it's, it's made me be very careful in some of the language I use in my article. So I might say some women or most, I don't, I don't ever try to use absolutes, especially when it comes to me comparing how men um, perform at work versus women or how men are at home versus women. Having said that, um, you got, you. I always like to say you wouldn't go to Burger King and ask for a Big Mac. So, so, fellas, when you're coming to my pages and reading my articles and it says that I'm the number one global voice for working moms, don't get offended if I'm saying something negative about guys. Um, but the women who come to me, they have influenced my articles so greatly. The whole idea of women using 420, uh, I'm sorry, women using... Um, uh, marijuana for anxiety that came from a mother and all the challenges that she was going through and then when i posted that article hundreds of comments on social about women doing the same thing so I was quite surprised by that and how disruptive we are to that industry mm-hmm. multicultural family or i should say blended families and um, how there were some moms one of my articles for Huff post was called dear white mothers I fear for your black son because there were mothers who were were reaching out to me who said, well, my son is, um, He's uh, multicultural. I am a white mom, but I don't think that any of this applies to me. So, uh, any of the racial injustice or civil unrest, I don't think that's something I need to educate him on. And mm-hmm. I was, I wrote about that yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah. I was, I was stunned. And that ended up leading to uh, another author writing a book and asking me to write the forward because there's that disconnect between some moms that have black sons and or black children and don't realize that everything going on in the world is directly impacting them as well. So, yes, um, I, sometimes I'm, a, I'm somebody who has a little bit too much empathy. So sometimes I do mm-hmm. have to detach and disconnect from when people reach out to me because I have heard just horrific stories and I'm, I'm always of the mindset that, that I'm trying to help everybody. But it definitely comes if I can't help personally, it's going to come through in the writing for sure.
2: Before I ask any more questions, uh, do you want to give a shout out to that book you just referenced that you wrote the full word for?
1: Oh, sure. It's by Dr. Annie Ranking, and it's called not just black and white.
2: Oh, interesting. Thanks. I hadn't seen that um, yeah. when I was uh, doing my research for this. That's interesting as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I was going to touch on empathy as well, because I, I guess for what I was thinking is that you don't want to let feedback rock your confidence as a writer because you want to stay true to your Absolutely. message. So it's interesting. So it's interesting that you just said that, you have to be conscious of the fact you're quite empathetic in it just sounds like it's a practice to remind yourself that 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 is a part of you that's part of your personality and so you want to kind of remain true to it and not give in and not be overly empathetic to take on too many other people's problems. Is that fair?
1: It is. I always try to lead with it. And and I don't because I have so much going on myself as a single black mom of two. I try not to take on too many of other people's problems, but I always end up doing it. My therapist will tell you that. Um But the other thing I try to do is make sure that when I do um, put the data in my articles that I'm letting the data speak for itself. So I'm not, I'm never providing an article that is too filled with emotion or or too biased. I I always try and let the data support my argument. Hmm.
2: That's interesting. And it's something I hadn't thought to ask, but as someone that, leads with authenticity in their writing. It can be easy to see data sometimes as the enemy. I know this from working with content writers, copywriters, and just creative people in general, is that they're so committed to the thing that they want to share with the world, that data can be a distraction. So um, I'm interested just to know throughout your career, has that been a challenge for you? Has that come naturally to you? Do you like the contrast of both authenticity and data and what it can help you learn?
1: I've never considered it to be a contrast. I've always considered it to be a compliment. And Mm. I, that's funny that you've heard that from content marketers because I've always heard you can manipulate data to say anything you want to say, (laughs) Um, you know? So I've never had a problem with the data. I think that I, it's crazy. I wouldn't even publish a piece if I didn't have the data to support. And I really don't manipulate the data, but Typically, when it comes to what I'm talking about, working moms, the proof is always in the pudding. And the proof is in the pudding being the data. So I know just anecdotally how much mothers are stressed out, that mothers are losing their jobs, that their children are falling behind. And then nine times out of 10, I know that the Department of Labor is going to back me up or the U.S. Department of Labor or Pew Research Center is going to back me up or um, Nielsen is going to back me up with multicultural insights. Just be, I, I think when marketers are trying to, they have a hypothesis that is very off the wall, then yeah, the data is going to piss you off because it's not going to match. But if you're truly in tune with your consumer or truly in tune with your audience, you can always find data, to support, incredible data to support your argument.
2: I wanted to also ask you about, so you, I've kind of gone back, looked at your article, seen the evolution of your writing, your contributions. Um, you're an influencer in this particular space now, as you said, kind of number one global voice for working moms, and you've achieved a lot of success And I'm interested to know, once you achieve a certain level of success, there's always that ego at play. Everyone has an ego, but in my opinion, everyone has an
1: Yes, definitely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I'm interested to know kind of what keeps you grounded. So we talked about the fact that perhaps, you know, you're, you're quite focused on your goal, your mission. So you're not so worried all of the time about vanity metrics. But I remember reading towards the end of your book about your friends, the f- you know your friends, family, people that have contributed to that particular book. Yeah. Where do you get your grounding from? Is it friends, family? Is it peers?
1: It's absolutely friends and family. Those people don't care about me writing a book or anything that I've done. So I can't. And again, family is very important to me. So I'm always surrounded by family. So if I were to jump into a group text message with them or go to a family event and try and give somebody my book, oh my God, my family would ridicule me to no end. Um, So it's absolutely my family and friends that keep me grounded. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. they keep me inspired to, to push harder for them um, and and to just push harder for our family.
2: Hmm. Now, that's really interesting. And I say that because, again, for content marketers, for anyone that's in any kind of writing or creative role, the phrase that I always come back to is no one wants to smoke their own crack. I know that's a horrible <laughs> phrase, but, but, but um, hey, it. it's on my Hey,
1: it's stolen,
2: stolen. And, um, so, so what I'm thinking is that everyone needs someone there, whether it's a mentor, a peer to say, Hey, you, you've gone a little bit off track to, you know, what's true to you. And I think that's just useful for everyone in that kind of role to have. I wanted to move on to, some very specific more advertising and marketing questions. And there's a a section in your book, I can't remember which chapter it's in, but you talk about perfect mom websites, the stuff that I was talking about earlier, kind of perfection pornography, this presentation of the ideal. And I always struggle to know where I'm at or where marketing's at, as in, are we still in that era where generally you think people are presenting something that's idealistic? Or do you think we're moving forward just as as people uh, do you think we're moving beyond that
1: i think the former i think there's some best there? th- yeah i think that there are some best in class examples of companies who are finding that perfect blend of showing honest parenting but keeping it something that has been done by an advertising agency. I always go back to mm-hmm. Procter and & Gamble and the amazing work that they did with Loves to show um, in commercials just how hard it is and everything that you're juggling and navigating as a parent. University of Phoenix does a great job too of showing how mm-hmm. many women are ambitious and want to further their careers. There's a ton of data and insights and in articles about that, but at the same time feel guilty for doing so. That's exactly why I started Mompreneur and Me. But um University of Phoenix does a really good job of that. What I would say is we know that influencer marketing is on the rise and continues to be on the rise, but there is a backlash of uh, followers with those influencers how they aren't posting what authentic motherhood looks like because they're in a tough, they're between a rock and a hard place. So for their followers, their followers are looking for honest parenting, how hard it is, how real it is, how raw it is. But brands are still looking for curated content and have such guidelines and parameters to work with them that it almost makes it virtually impossible for them to be able to also still be authentic to their audience.
2: Hmm. And to you, in terms of the influencer marketing aspect of that, so you have young children there, I assume on YouTube, as much as you allow them to be, My I assume God, they watch influencers day, day. on YouTube. <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> it, it, is this something you worry about? Do you police it in any way? If so, how do you do that? What are your thoughts on that aspect?
1: Nope, because it's the sign of a generation. Um, Well, I should say the mark of a generation. And I know that that's not going to be popular. But again, I try to be authentic and honest whenever I can. My parents, uh, my mom was a single mom. She worked, kept me glued in front of a TV but I skipped grades in school and I am a writer today and I am a pretty successful um, global marketing strategist. So I don't think that media is the enemy. I think what happens is that the parents have to create well, well well-rounded and educated children. And that's what I'm doing for my kids. My kids spend all day, every day on YouTube, as most millennial mothers do. We all have these astronomical Apple pay bills from the kids buying apps and Roblox and, trying to s- create their own YouTube channels. That's what this generation is about, really. I wrote about that for Forbes Generation Alpha. That's a tech-savvy generation. You can't fight them from being a part of tech if you tried. But it doesn't mean that they're going to be a-, a generation of idiots by any means. Um, it's, it's, it really just has to do with how how the parents choose to raise them.
2: Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm kind of digesting what you're saying. As you're saying, it. in my mind, it, it sounds like... You think that, again, it's, a, it's just a generational difference in terms of the amount of time that kids spend on social media and YouTube. And um, as parents, you should roll with the punches and don't let that be an excuse to not guide children, and just be a good parent.
1: Exactly. But uh, uh, yes, and as I said, it was, it's a sign of the generation. So their generation mm-hmm. is hooked to their smart devices. My generation was hooked to TV. Generation before me, hooked on radio or older generations. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where they heard cartoons, but they really weren't cartoons because you couldn't see them. But that's where they heard stories. And it's that's, that's just how our society is. There's always something that people the general population hooks onto doesn't make us idiots it's just how we consume content and that's how my kids are consuming content through their smartphones
2: is there anyone that you think does a really good job of it in terms of that your children watch so that you think is very conscious of the fact that and actually just a question for you so mm-hmm. as you are an influential person yourself now and that comes with kind of great responsibility and i'm curious to know of any how you manage that. So how you manage yourself as an influencer and any influential people out there you think do a great job of remaining authentic in particular.
1: Oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, I think that for me, my, I stay true to my audience and again, authentic and grounded in data and that's millennial moms. I don't imagine that their children are following me on social, but even so, I'm not sharing anything that the children probably aren't seeing in their homes from their mothers. <laughs> um, and when it comes to somebody who I think is doing a best-in-class job of communicating to children in, a, in an authentic way, but also teaching great lessons, Dharman. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with Dharman. It's D-H-A-R-M-A-N-N. So, what no. I find interesting about Darman is that they have um and it's a it's one guy, but he has this whole studio, and he's producing content that is geared towards it's got to be geared towards educating children about life issues, but in such a way that it is very very now and very, very relevant. So it's not necessarily something along the lines of like a Sesame Street or what you would consider to be traditional education. Like today, we're going to talk about trust or today we're going to talk about what it means to understand what's going on in America. It's using almost from the the perspective of like a soap opera, but in a way that is relevant and engaging for children, and my my five year old and my nine year old love it. And I I was looking, I, so when they started getting on it, I started looking at the the followers and the uh, the amount of engagement that man videos get, and it's it's absolutely through the roof. It's it's definitely worth it's, it, and it's. And they're in, extremely captivating and you will you'll find yourself in a spiral with them. So I highly recommend those. I think that they're doing a great job of educating children on what it means to just put yourself in the shoes of your fellow man.
2: That's interesting. I'll take a look at that. That's my evening sorted. I know yeah. that I'll get lost in a YouTube rabbit hole. You, you are, you <laughs> are. You're going to binge it. You're going to binge it. And uh, you, you mentioned Procter & Gamble. Um, and I'm curious to know if there are any other companies brands in particular that you think do a great job of being authentic because it's a really difficult thing in marketing um, in terms of how authenticity has come to the forefront over the years uh, the role that it plays in messaging in today's society and so I'm curious to know that from some someone like you your perspective but you lead with authenticity and so you must be alert I assume yes. to other companies or other people that are doing the same so who stands out to you? Who do you like checking in with?
1: Well, you know, God, I always, I hate being so honest all the time, but the two companies that come to mind from a consumer marketing perspective, mm. knocking it out the park, but when it comes to being stewards of the with internally within the organization, Not, not as strong. I'll just say that not as strong. And the first company, and and you mentioned this to content marketers, and they don't even think of this company because it has been ingrained in their strategy for so many years that you wouldn't even notice it. But Coca-Cola does an Mm. awesome job awesome job of being authentic and having empathy in their content marketing and in their ads and making sure that they are targeting unique multicultural or unique segmented audiences. I think it's they do a brilliant job of that. The second company is Walmart, actually. I think that they do a great job of it, too, especially when it comes to some of the challenges that um, different segments of America are facing.
2: Is there anything specifically that you think they do well? is are we talking social media? are we talking about any other kind of content marketing that they produce?
1: Yeah, we're talking ads, um, definitely digital ads. I think that Walmart does a great job of not just making one size fits all for all of their communities, but they actually take the time to curate and craft content to meet, match each audience, which is an extra step, but it's worth it in the end. It's a payoff. Uh, I, think, I hate to say a lot of content marketers are lazy. And they talk Mm. to audiences the same way across every platform and in every message. And Walmart doesn't do that. Um, I actually, Walmart actually reached out to me to target working moms. And I had nothing to do with them, no affiliation with the company at all. And they recognized how hard it was to be a working mom. And we shot a commercial together. So I was, I didn't even Mm. think of that when I mentioned them as an example, but there you go. That's a perfect example right there. Um, Coke does a really good job of it with advertising
2: we're touching on areas there of diversity inclusivity but without being tokenistic which is a big problem right. in marketing right. right that makes a lot of sense okay well that's interesting because i don't i don't think to check out walmart in particular so that will be something interesting for me to look at and i'm sure for our listeners too it's not one of those companies that comes to mind where you think immediately oh they're right. doing a great job of that exactly
1: you know? and you know i'm unbiased because i just said that they're not doing a good job in terms
2: <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned Coca-Cola as well, because again, uh, they probably do such a great job of it that, like you said, they don't immediately come to mind, but I was just thinking, exactly. I've just, I've just wrapped up my second time of watching Mad Men and, uh, uh. um, and I've just re- finished the last episode in the last scene, yes, uh, which actually maybe, 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 I, maybe I won't give away too much just in case oh, anyone yes. not listened to it on yes. the podcast. Well, you know, spoiler
1: alert rules don't apply <laughs> if it went off 10 years ago.
2: Yeah, no, that's true. So yeah, there's a scene at the end um, and um, it, that was uh, one of Coca-Cola's f- most famous commercials. And that's kind of how Mad Men closes. And yeah. I was just thinking to myself about that particular scene and that's matching everything you're saying about just being, aware of what's happening in different cultures in different societies and then making sure the messaging is associated with that really. So that's really interesting.
1: But Scott, can I tell you that that's a, that is a fabulous example for this podcast because if if anybody does watch Mad Men, everybody knows that whenever, um, oh my God, whenever Don went through these moments of existential crisis, and whenever he had to actually tap into his emotions and what was going on in his life, that's when he created the best content. So that's mm-hmm. what the, the that's what the series finale was about was him yeah. completely escaping everything. And once he finally did, he created the share coke ad. That's when you're believe. That's what it's led you to believe.
2: I should have closed on that point. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect close to a podcast, but I'm going to carry on for a little, for a little while longer, if it's okay. While I've of got course. You. <laughs> um, so I am, inter- I am interested in um, just talking about ad agencies actually. And um, you I assume work both with ad agencies directly, indirectly sometimes. Right. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, particularly about ad agencies that work with influencers in the role of influencer marketing. Where do you see ad agencies going right, and where do you see ad agencies going wrong?
1: Again, I think where they go wrong, I, just because that comes off of the, comes off the top of my head, is I see sometimes these briefs that have that the. The What you can't do, the, what the restrictions are, there are more bullets to the restrictions than the description mm. of what they're looking for from the influencer. So it's like, mm. don't talk about civil unrest. Don't talk about uh, politics. Don't include photos of your children where their clothing is a mess or any. It's just ridiculous. Mm. I think that's where you go wrong, especially if you're targeting moms. The the amount of restrictions is ridiculous. I think where they go right is finally recognizing that these women control 85% of household purchases and have an outrageous spending power. And they're influencing not just other women, but they're influencing other generations and men and how men shop. So recognizing that influence, well, recognizing that influencers are here to stay, that's a good thing. What took so long boggles my mind because I think about my mother's generation and how Tupperware was basically affiliate marketing, just how influencers work today too. Mm. Uh, (laughs) What took so long for companies to realize that moms are are where the purchasing power happens and and where it's at? I don't know. But um, I'm glad that they finally got that right and realized that that's, that's the audience to target. But I do think that they still try to curate and control what those women create way too much. I also think that they got it right that, you know, looking at likes and followers isn't necessarily what to do. It's really about engagement. And I love that nano influencers and micro influencers are kind of popping on the scene because those women tend to have better recommendations and more trusted recommendations. So I think there are some good things that are going on. I just think that restricting women is always a bad idea. (laughs)
2: <laughs> let, uh, let me re, uh, reframe another question that I asked at the beginning so um maybe you think from your perspective w- when you receive an email from a, a from a company or a person that wants to collaborate with you what's music to your ears what do you love to see in those initial qu- emails to you or, or your briefs
1: sure we love your content and we've read your content mm-hmm. that's the biggest because i feel At that point, I feel like you're allowing me to serve as a creative director or a um, partner with you versus you hitting me or coming at me with a brief. Mm -hmm. Because you already understand my tone of voice. You already understand my audience's need states. You know that I'm going to always meet their need states with my writing. When you try and force me to fit your mold, that's where I know it's not going to be a fit
2: yeah it's so interesting when, when you say about um someone referencing the fact that they've read your work they're interested in your work that can also come across as really superficial in my yeah in my experience as a podcaster I think the message that I really want to send as I'm talking here is that so we 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 have a popular podcast here we get lots of requests to be on the podcast and sometimes the opening lines of people that want to contribute to this podcast yeah. are, oh, we really enjoyed this last episode link and you can tell it's kind of automated, semi automated, and actually they right. haven't listened to it at all. Yeah. And so it's very easy to see through that. And I don't really know if that message is loud and clear in marketing. It still feels like it that that superficial level still exists in marketing to me, which I find sometimes disappointing.
1: Well, you know the people who enjoy that superficial level of marketing are those that smoke their own crack. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are the ones who don't care. They're just looking for the ego boost, as you said.
2: Yeah, no, that's true as well. That's interesting. I want to close out in in a different area, but as an area that I'm interested in because you've got so much going on, and I think you reference yourself as a Taipei a personality in your book and in some of your content. And again, with so much going on, I couldn't leave the podcast without talking to you about efficiency, organization. And um, the first thing I'm curious about is how you've been coping from. I'm assuming that you're still working from home or occasionally working home, from right. home over in over in Baltimore. Yeah. How have you adapted to that? particularly given the fact that uh, you have to interview, you research, you attend podcasts. How are you finding that?
1: Yeah. And work has not slowed down at all. Um, If anything, it has exponentially increased because of COVID and everybody being aware of the crisis that working mothers have been in for years. I felt like chicken little for years telling people the sky is falling, but because I did for years and because I'm somebody who always tries to prepare for the future, I watched what was happening and late 2019 with China and mm. for some reason I, I, I don't even understand how my country, God bless us, but thank goodness you're from the, the EMEA but um, I don't understand how my country would think, oh that's happening in China, it's not going to come over here <laughs> so <laughs> I prepared myself financially then for the fact that my children were going to be out of school and my world was going to be disrupted and I have help at home and I mm. encourage everybody um, women, as some some people may say, oh, she, she's rich or she might have more than me and that's why she can do it. No, women, there are a lot of women in the world. There are a lot of parents in the world who have savings, emergency savings. And I was encouraging them back in Q1 of 2020. You, this is this is the time. This is what you're saving for. So if you can, wherever you can, find help because there's not always going to be help from friends and family. Obviously, we know with social distancing and, the, distancing and the pandemic, that was the case. So, I mean, that is a principle that I apply personally and in business, because you're right, I am type A. So I am always trying to prepare for the future and make sure that in the event that something happens to me, that my life is delegated out as much as possible. So that's how I was able to scale my business because from day one, I was growing it as if I had a team in place and creating processes and resources for a team that I now have. Um, Same thing for how I run my household. I know that a lot of all, first of all, all moms are working moms, even stay-at-home moms, because they're household managers. But I knew that as a household manager for my house, I was going to have to have things farmed out or delegated out to make sure everything continued to run smoothly.
2: That's really interesting. And speaking practically, just because you must have, I can tell just you're speaking so passionately about it, that you have systems, you have processes, you have support yes. in place with, for all of these different areas of your life. But are there any, whether it's apps, technology, services, frameworks that you use, even resources or books that have really helped you not only adapt right now in in what we're living in right now, but just throughout your life, what's your go-to?
1: Yeah, you know, um, some of the resources and tools that I use, I actually love Grammarly. You know, it it saves me a lot of time in my writing. I I used to keep a a doc, like a notes document, of what I needed to do as like a checklist before I put an an article through, and now I can just do that through Grammarly, which is extremely helpful. My team and I use Trello, which is great for content marketers. Um, I can uh, approve the content that my team is creating for social. Where we can talk about PR opportunities um, I'm a fan of Hero; saves me from having to comb the yeah. internet to, to see what mm-hmm. what opportunities are available and it also provides me with credible resources for articles so I, I love that too personally I'm always uh, I always remember the bad examples versus the good so I set out to write a book like you said that was helped to be to show that I was a working progress and help others grow prior to my book and I think what gave me the passion to write the book was the Cheryl Sandbergs and the Rachel Hollises of the world and how they were telling women, you can just go out there and do it. Like, what are you waiting for? What's stopping you? Um Systemic racism is stopping me. Um, disreport- disproportionate advantage financially in my country is stopping me. The fact that I have a larger household, you know, like, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of things stopping uh, me. Thing. <laughs> right. So so I, I always remember the, the negatives more so than me giving you a, a great positive example of something that helps me personally. I'm sorry.
2: No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. You, you're kind of driven by the gap that exists there. It's, exactly. It's kind of Exactly. You know.
1: I've, I've, I mean, there are very few women. I, I think of Tiffany Alish with the Budget Niso who provides such great professional advice or fairy Godboss that provides great career development advice. But those examples are so few and far between compared to the amount of women out there saying, you know, in, in perfectly lit kitchens with marble countertops and they're posing on it cross-legged and saying, I can do this. I'm amazing. You can be amazing too
2: well actually that needs nicely onto a transition to close the podcast because one resource that we can recommend is your book which i'll reference again Thank you so much. as far and that's um, <laughs> on amazon and uh, that's pretty much on every platform you can get it everywhere and then can on we go to work that's available also via amazon is that correct, yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that's correct so you go to your website and uh, before i let you go are there any other either social media profiles urls websites that you want to shout out and let, let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and what you do.
1: Absolutely. So everywhere that I write for and all of my social profiles are on my website, christinemichellecarter.com. And um, I am working on beefing up our sec- our website with the blog section. So there's a lot of content there for moms and also content marketers.
2: You've been an amazing guest I can't wait to see what you do next. I'll be paying attention to what oh. you do you, I can tell you um we we exchanged emails before this podcast, and I was saying you know I'm not your target audience <laughs> as a as a british <laughs> british non parent male you know right. not a working mom but, but i but I can tell you there's so much that I got from your book and just as um Uh, As someone who enjoys writing, who enjoys marketing, enjoys communication, it really gave me a lot of motivation and inspiration, and I just couldn't wait after I'd finished it to speak to you. So uh, it's been really great to talk to you today.
1: Thank you, Scott. Sincerely, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much.
2: No problem. Okay, take care.
1: All right, take care.